But you change us, O oh God, by your word, we ask through Christ. Amen. I just invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter 6 today. Ephesians 6. I'm very much enjoying our, our study through the armor of God, Ephesians 6. And of course, the, uh, the, the imagery that we have here in Ephesians 6 is warfare imagery, about taking the armor and standing in battle. If you uh, just think about it for a minute, ancient warfare was incredibly messy business. It wasn't any of this business of sort of sitting back in a control room in the Pentagon, flying a drone on the other side of the world. It was hand-to-hand combat. It was combat where you had to get close to the enemy so you could physically wound or even kill him. Think of battle where battle axes are being swung, where Roman short swords, the gladiuses, you have to get within 18 inches to stab into the chest of your enemy. Imagine a battlefield that is strewn with people with absolutely horrific wounds. There's blood, there's suffering, there's yelling, there's, there's screaming. It's an absolute mess. That's the image that Paul is using to say, this is what the Christian life is kind of like. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a, just a walking down a beautiful road where just birds are singing and everything is great. Now, there are times in the Christian life that we enjoy that. But the Christian life is simultaneously a battle against the, the forces of hell. It's simultaneously a battle against our own sinful desires is simultaneously a battle against the influences of the world that is always trying to shape us into its mold. Into such a battle, no soldier would ever dream of going unprepared. No Roman soldier would think, hey, I'm just going to show up to battle doing whatever. So Paul takes this image of a Roman soldier and he says, look at the armor that he would have. Look at the equipment, the preparation that he would undergo before setting foot onto the battlefield. We've looked already at, at a number of the The verses here, Paul says to be strong in the Lord, verse 10, and in the power of his might. We cannot stand in battle on our own. He says, put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of Satan. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our our enemy is not the the culture. Our enemy is is the deception and the forces of hell. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. He's saying, be prepared so you can stand, so you don't slip when the battle comes, so you don't fall when the enemy charges. Stand therefore, verse 14, have your loins girt about with truth. So the Roman soldier, as he prepares to go into battle, would have taken first this belt. He would have tucked the the robe into the belt so it's not all that excess fabric is not getting in the way. To put the belt on is to say he is prepared, he is ready. For the Christian, we take the truth of God, the truth of God's word, and that is what holds everything together. That is the, the, the thing that holds all the armor in place. Next, verse 14 says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Next, the Roman soldier would take the two pieces of the the breastplate, a front piece and a back piece, and that would be cinched on. Someone else has to do that for you, right? That this righteousness is a righteousness we receive from God by faith, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just as the breastplate covers all the vital organs, so the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will protect us in the battle. 
We go on, verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Next, the Roman soldier would take those boots, the caliga, he would strap those onto his feet, those boots with a thick sole and with the, the, the metal studs, the cleats on them that would enable him to be able to stand. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus that gives us peace with God and peace from God that enables us to stand. But it's also the shoes on our feet that allow us to advance It's the shoes on our feet, the the gospel message that we take into a dark and a dying world and proclaim the message of Jesus. Verse 16, and above all, at all times, take the shield of faith. So now that he's got the armor tied to his body, now the Roman soldier picks up his shield, this large shield that would cover his whole body. Paul says it's the shield of faith. It's the faith, the confidence in the promises of God. Wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The Roman soldier would take that shield. He would soak it in water before the battle so that it could extinguish the, the fiery arrows that would be shot at him. In the same way, the Christian, by faith in the promises of God, can extinguish the arrows of temptation that Satan would fire, fire upon us. And then where we are this morning, verse 17. Next, he takes the helmet of salvation. Take this helmet, put it on his head, strap it to his head. And then finally, in his other hand, with the shield in one hand, he picks up the sword in the other and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The first three pieces of armor are affixed to the body. Okay, so the the first three are are tied literally to the body, the belt that would also include the sort of a leather apron to protect the legs. There's the shield of the, 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 uh, the breastplate of righteousness tied to the body. The shoes tied to the feet. And the next three pieces of armor are ones that the soldier must pick up right before battle. The helmet is heavy, so you don't just wear that all the time. You put it on as the, as the battle approaches. So these last three pieces, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, are taken up. So last week we, we looked at the shield. This week we'll look at the helmet and the sword. Now, don't lose sight of the big picture here. It's easy to get lost in the weeds here of each piece of armor that we forget the whole idea. This is the armor of God. It comes from God. It's not armor that we go and forge ourselves. But these are attributes and gifts that that belong to God himself that he shares with us. Lying behind so much of this is the book of Isaiah. Paul's not just pulling this imagery out of his head, but he is pulling it out of Scripture, even as he is a Roman soldier chained to him as he's under house arrest. This armor enables us to stand. The main imperative all the way through is verse 14. Stand, therefore, and then everything else is telling us, here's the equipment we will need to be able to stand and succeed in the battle. We stand by taking the armor. We stand by being equipped. We stand by latching onto the resources that God has already given to us. So if we're going to stand, look today, and we'll see that we must wear the helmet of salvation. We must wield the sword of the Spirit. We must, to use sort of modern lingo, be locked and loaded, ready to go. The bullet is chambered. The armor is ready to go. The soldier is ready to go into battle. He's ready to confront the enemy. The safety is off. He is ready to fight. So let's look at each one of these pieces of armor, the the helmet of salvation. If we're going to stand, we've got to take the helmet of salvation. We see that in verse 17. The helmet of salvation. So as all the other armors in place, the soldier now takes up his helmet. Now, the Roman helmet was typically made of metal, and the inside of it would be made out of leather or have sponge material to have some kind of padding on the head. And some of the helmets would have a visor. They would typically have a sort of a a piece to come down and protect the cheek from blows to the face. And the, the, the helmet that the Roman soldier wore was very, very strong. It could withstand just about anything up to the blow of a battle axe. You'd be pretty well protected with that that helmet on your head. 
Now, just as a helmet protects the head, I think there's something here in Paul's. Why does he say the helmet of salvation as opposed to, like, the shin guards of salvation? Why, why the helmet? Just as the helmet would protect the head, so the salvation that God has won for us, the deliverance that God has won for us, protects our minds from Satan's attacks. Isn't it true that one of the ways Satan will attack us is he'll go after our minds? He'll make us, he'll make us believe in the middle of the battle it's not really worth continuing to fight. He'll make us doubt our salvation, think, do you really belong in the Lord's army? Are you, really, are you really, really one of his? Do you really have this assurance that God is for you and not against you? Do you know that you're really going to win the battle, that God, God's going to win in the end? Because right now the battle is pretty messy. And so we have these thoughts that plague us as Christians. Sometimes it's plagues of, thoughts of anxiety. A study after study shows that we are living in an epidemic of anxiety. Our country is just overcome with anxiety over just about everything. We're living in the most affluent, safe time in history, and yet we have more anxiety than any time in history. What's going on? And it's not limited just outside the walls of the church. Christians struggle with this anxiety, crippling anxiety, crippling fear. And I think at the bottom of it is this anxiety of, will I be enough? Will I be accepted in God's sight? The helmet of salvation tells me that I am. The helmet of salvation tells me that God has delivered me and brought me into the beloved. There's two dimensions here of salvation. There's salvation already accomplished, and then there's salvation not yet. So let's deal with both of those aspects. Already, right now, the salvation, the the deliverance, that's all the word salvation means, by the way, rescue, deliverance from sin and from God's wrath. Already we have that. It gives us a present protection against the attacks of Satan. When Satan would try to plunge us into doubt or despair or guilt or disbelief or shame or hopelessness, the helmet of salvation is what protects us. You see, God has delivered us. If you are here today and you are trusting in Christ and him alone, that's the the only condition by grace are you saved through faith. If you're you're trusting in Jesus, you have been delivered from your much-deserved wrath. Listen, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God because of our law-breaking, because of our sin, because of our idolatry. All of us have idols that we have set up in our hearts, that we worship, that we look to for ultimate meaning. But through Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, we have been rescued and delivered from God's wrath, from God's judgment, from the guilt, from the shame that we deserve. Our sins are forgiven, and we have present pardon. Now, here's the thing. Who who works the salvation? Who brings about this deliverance? Standing behind this this verse, you've got a Bible with cross-references, you would probably have this, is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verse 17. And Paul is quoting directly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all the way down to a very unusual uh, form of the word salvation. Let me just read you some of Isaiah 59. Okay, in Isaiah 59, God is presenting himself as the divine warrior. It says, when the Lord saw it, it displeased him that there was no justice. So God looks at the nation of Israel. He looks at his people. And rather than saying, man, Israel's got it all together. They're so great and they're representing me well. He sees a, a, a people that is marked by injustice and idolatry, immorality, absolutely wicked. There's nothing in Israel to commend them to God. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Like there's nobody who's pleading for his people. No one who is standing faithfully. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And a helmet of salvation on his head. 
He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now, in the context there, God of the divine warrior is coming not to pardon Israel, but to punish them. Coming and saying, your sins deserve wrath, and I'm going to come and I'm going to unleash wrath. But Isaiah goes on to talk about that there's going to be a redeemer that God's going to raise up in Zion. When we read the Bible, when we look at our own lives, we don't, look, we don't find a bunch of people who are, who are heroically and righteously doing God's will. In fact, we find precisely the opposite. You read the Old Testament, Israel, they're not faithful. You read the great heroes and judges, their lives are a disaster. If there's going to be deliverance, it's going to be deliverance that God brings about himself. Now, we've got a problem. The backdrop of Isaiah is God is putting on this helmet of deliverance to unleash wrath on his people. That's not good news. It's not good news that God is going to come and unleash wrath on those who deserve his wrath. And this is where the good news of Jesus comes in. The helmet of salvation, this promise of God delivering and putting on his zeal and his judgment is only good news if that judgment is put onto another. It's only good news if that wrath can be turned away and I can experience the pardon of God. And beloved, that is precisely what we have in Jesus Christ. God looked and saw no intercessor, but to the cross he looks, and there is one who stands between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one who absorbs the wrath of God. There is one who absorbs the judgment that we deserve and unleashes the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And so this helmet that God puts on his head to go and accomplish salvation, he gives to us. Now, the other thing I would note is God says, I look in Israel, they're not contributing anything to their own salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. God himself and God alone brings about our salvation. Listen, I think we need to hear this again and again. You contributed nothing to your standing before God. There's no self-righteousness that we can claim. There's no deed that you can say, well, I did this. There's no, I'm better than other people. The good news of salvation leads us to a place where we're laid low in the dust before God. We recognize his arm has accomplished salvation. So what does this mean for us to take the helmet of salvation? The word, I like the word take. It's the idea of receive. We're receiving the salvation that God has already won himself as a gift. Ephesians 2 has already told us this. By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's gift. We receive forgiveness and grace as a gift. We're picking up a helmet provided by our captain. We're taking hold of a gift that's already been paid for. That's how gifts work, right? Someone shows up to your birthday, they don't hand you the gift with a payment plan. Right? They don't hand it to you with like, here's the invoice to pay for the thing I just bought you. That's not a gift. Gift is paid for by someone else. It's simply received. So we're talking about this gift that God has already purchased. What is this in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 lay out all the benefits that are ours in Christ. What is already ours in Jesus Already, according to Ephesians 1, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, which means I belong to God's family. Already, I have been adopted into the family of God, Ephesians chapter 1 as well. Already, I have been redeemed by the cross work of Jesus Christ. Already, I have the down payment of the final redemption, that is the Holy Spirit dwelling within my heart, the proof that God is going to finish what he has started. Already I have been saved. We could render Ephesians 2, 8 this way. This would be, be a legitimate way to say, to say it. For you have been saved by grace through faith. The salvation has happened, and it's final, and it is settled. 
already. We have been raised from spiritual death. We've been raised up together with Christ, and I am made alive in him. Already I have forgiveness. Already I have been declared righteous in God's sight. Already I have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Already I have been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Already we are the people of God, accepted in God's sight. Already we are the dwelling place of God's presence. This is already ours. There's nothing more for us to achieve or to strive for. This is ours. Now, what, what, what's the implication here? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what this means. When Satan comes along and he says, you're not good enough. When Satan comes along and says, look, you messed up again. When Satan comes along and plants doubts in our minds, I put the helmet of salvation on and say, when Jesus said it is finished, the head of the serpent was crushed, and I'm accepted in God's sight. Now, that doesn't mean that our sin is meaningless. We've got to confess that. But it does mean my standing before God is settled. Do you realize this, that if God loved me before the foundation of the world, If God loved me knowing everything about me, which, by the way, God knowing everything about me is not putting anything in my favor to make him love me more. If God loved me knowing full well all the ways that I would fail, all the ways that I would, quote, unquote, let him down, and then send Jesus to die on the cross for me, there's literally nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. Satan will try to get us to think that God's love for me is sort of on a sliding scale dependent on my performance. And a day goes along, and you, you trip up, you fail, and Satan's like, oh, look, you just stay down in the dirt. You fell off the wagon, stay in the ditch. One of Satan's biggest weapons is guilt, is shame. To hold us down and keep us from coming to the throne of grace. When you sin, instead of saying, I'm going to run back to Jesus, who's going to forgive me? Satan will say, you're not good enough. You need to go put yourself, go put yourself in, you know, in, in, in hockey. You're in the penalty box because you, you know, you... You threw an elbow or something. Go sit in the penalty box for a while. And maybe in a week or so, you will have sort of done enough time for God to welcome you back into his presence. No, the gospel message says this. The moment that you sin, you run to Jesus and you find mercy and grace at the throne of grace. Now, that's no license to sin. But it is a guarantee of our standing before God having nothing to do with us. The helmet of salvation. Salvation already. But what about the not yet? By using the phrase already, I'm implying that there's a dimension of salvation that's not yet fully accomplished. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to turn over there, you'll, you'll see similar language. 1 Thessalonians is written before Ephesians, even though it comes later. It's written some, some time before. And so Paul's earlier use of this, this picture should inform the way we read Ephesians. First uh, Thessalonians 5, uh, 5 verses 8 and 9 says this, But let those of us who are of the day be sober... Putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Okay, imagery is a little different, but armor idea. Kind of put on this breastplate. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Now, hope now takes our orientation from the present and puts it to the future. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's saying there's salvation. There's a sense in which our salvation has not yet been fully obtained or realized. Does that just contradict everything I said? No, it's simply to say... There's a sense in which salvation is already and a sense in which it is not yet. Um, anybody looking around think that we're in heaven yet? 
I'm pretty sure I'm not in my glorified body yet, okay? Like, it's hair is starting to fall out and all of these things. I'm not there yet, okay? We have not arrived yet to the, to the streets of gold, to the glories of heaven. There's probably nobody here who would have the audacity to say, I've arrived spiritually, I no longer sin. I still live in this body of sin. I still have aches and pains. I still await final and future glory. The helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of final deliverance from this old world, from the sin that I have, from this body of death. Romans 13 has the same idea. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So he's writing people, when you first believed, we're getting closer and closer to salvation, to our final deliverance. Here's something that can really help you a little bit, the tenses of salvation. In one sense, I have been saved. My my salvation, in a sense, was settled before the foundation of the world. In one sense, my salvation was settled at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. So in one sense, I have been saved from the penalty of sin because I have been justified. I have been declared righteous. I'll never, ever, ever face the penalty of sin. I will never, ever, ever face the wrath of God as a Christian. That's done. It's finished. But in another sense... Is it not true that I'm actively being saved right now from the presence of sin? The Christian life is one of ever-increasing holiness and victory over sin. So I have been saved, justification. I am being saved, becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more like a saint. I'm already holy and blameless in his sight, but as the Christian life goes on, I close the gap between what I am in Christ and what I am in my daily life. Sanctification. And one day I will be saved. One day I will either die physically and transition into glory. Or Christ will return and he will call us to be with him. We will be rescued then on that day from the presence of sin. When we see him, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And when we are like Jesus, there is no more sin. You know what I'm most excited about in heaven? It's not the streets of gold. It's not the mansion. It's not the room in the Father's house. It's not the angel's. It's the fact there will be no more sin. The fact that I will no longer struggle with this old flesh, with the desires of my heart, with the pride of my soul, with the desires I have to do my own thing. One day I will be saved. I've not yet arrived, but I surely will. So we have these three tenses, justification, what is already true, sanctification, what is ongoing, and glorification, what will be one day. I will one day be glorified to be like Jesus. Now, I'm not calling that future into question. You say, well, is it possible for me to be justified but not be glorified? Is it possible for God to begin, you know, kind of call me to faith in Jesus and then me to somehow mess it up along the way? If you're asking that question, let me turn to direct you to Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul chases out the, traces out this golden chain of salvation. God, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Then he says this, whom he predestined... Then he also called. Okay, the gospel was preached. The call of God was heard in your soul. You came to faith in Jesus. And whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Notice it does not say, so God called some people and some of those he justified. And then some of the ones who he justified who were really awesome and holy and and devoted. Then, no, no, all of those whom God calls, he justifies. Everyone he justifies, he glorifies. Not one is lost. In the language of Philippians 1 verse 6, the one who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus. Okay, you and I are really good at starting stuff and not finishing it. How many of you have a half-finished project sitting out in your shed somewhere, right? 
God does not have half-finished projects that he's not going to complete. He finishes every project that he starts, including our salvation and especially our salvation. This is what gives us hope. We take the helmet of salvation as hope. Hope. Hope is like the child's happy anticipation of the certain arrival of Christmas. There's no question that Christmas is eventually going to come. Hope is not uncertain. It's just simply a promise that is unrealized. Okay? It's not wishful thinking, man, I hope things get better. Biblical hope is saying, God has promised I'm certain and I'm simply waiting. Hope is an unrealized promise. It's not an uncertain promise. It's a certainty that the sun will rise tomorrow morning, dispelling the darkness of midnight. It's expectant, not doubting. The outcome of hope is not uncertain, merely unrealized. So what is our hope? Romans 8 beautifully describes this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us or to us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth earnestly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and laboreth together in pain until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Okay, we already have everything. We don't have reason to hope. In fact, we don't have final glory yet that we hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. God will finish what he has started. Now, in the, in the context of Ephesians, we get this all over the place. The Holy Spirit, he's the engagement ring for the final wedding that is coming. In fact, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside us as God saying, one day it will not be so. One day, sin will be no more. One day, death will be destroyed. One day, death will be swallowed up in victory. One day, glory will be ours. So I've been delivered from the penalty of sin, though one day I will be delivered from the very presence of sin. In a sense, the war has been decisively won at Calvary. But there's going to be a final battle when Jesus mops up all the opposition. The first fruits, in a sense, have come in. Jesus rising from the dead is the beginning of God reversing everything that the fall messed up. But the final harvest has not yet happened. Jesus even now rules from heaven's throne, but the earthly establishment of his kingdom is still future. Already, and not yet. We're living in a day when there's so many people who are deconstructing their faith. How many of you have heard the term deconstruction? Uh, If you spend any time online, there's deconstruction stories and deconversion stories of people who say, I grew up in church, I grew up in evangelicalism, I grew up in fundamentalism, and I have evaluated what I was always taught, and I realized that it's really not true, it doesn't hold any water, and I've walked away from the faith. There's a lot of reasons for why that's happened. Some people have faced horrific abuse within the church, and they say, if that's what the church is like, I don't want anything to do with it. Others have have experienced real hardship. Others have gone through hard times. But here's one of the reasons why I think so many deconstruct their faith. The Christianity they were presented with made promises that it did not deliver. It says, follow these steps and and you will have success in every area of your life. Just quote this verse and you won't struggle with temptation anymore. 
We, they had a Christianity that offered quick fixes rather than the hard road of following Jesus. A Christianity that said, believe in Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. They were told you can live your best life now and live beyond limits. You can soar above suffering and hardship. You can be successful in what you do. You can believe in Jesus and your life will be peace. You follow this path of doing things God's way and your marriage will turn out well. And people truly believe that message. They latch onto that message thinking that Jesus is the way to a better life. And they follow Jesus and then they find out, I have these struggles in my life. I have this difficulty in my life. This Christianity did not deliver what it was supposed to deliver. What's the problem with that teaching? God indeed has promised us infinite goodness. God has promised us infinite and eternal joy. Just not all of it right now. Just not all of it right now. Theologians might call this an over-realized eschatology. God's got promises in the future, but we sort of hit rewind and try to bring them into the present. It's stealing the Christmas trees, Christmas gifts three weeks early from under the Christmas tree and sort of opening them up before the time appointed. It's promising the 12-year-old that he can legally drive now. It's promising for the present the glory that God has reserved for the future. So God has destined us for eternal joy, but he doesn't promise that it's all going to be here right now. There is a cross that we have to carry before we get the crown. There is suffering that we walk through before we reach our final rest. There is reward that comes after service. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Christian life is miserable. The Christian life is one of infinite joy because I'm looking forward to those promises. It's infinite joy because of the one in whose hand my hand is clasped. We indeed do taste appetizers for the coming banquet. But make no mistake, the Christian life is one of taking up the cross and following Jesus. And fighting sin is not a quick fix. It's not a do these three things. It's not a follow Jesus and you'll never have any trouble in your life. What I'm saying is taking the helmet of salvation, this hope in the future, is essential for you to not lose your faith. To believe that the best for the Christian is always yet to come. No matter how good a church service is, it can never match what we'll have in glory. No matter how good your marriage is, it cannot compare to the marriage that will one day be between Christ and his people. And it also means this, no matter how bad things are, that's not the final word. The promises of glory are true, but Easter comes after Good Friday. The New Testament writers repeatedly call us to screw our courage to the sticking place of God's immutable promises. How do we stand in battle is God's promises that he has made to us for the future. 1 Peter 5, verse 10 says, But may the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. 1 John 3 tells us that we are now the children of God already, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, for we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Hebrews 12 tells us to run the race, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. See the joy on the other end. That's what keeps us going, the hope of final deliverance. It is hope. That puts steel into the spine of the saint. It is hope that puts strength into the soul. It is hope, hope that fuels resilience like wood for a fire, like gasoline to an engine. Hope is the wind in our sails. So when you find your zeal flagging, preach to yourself. Preach to yourself the promises of God. 
preach to yourself promises like Romans 8.18 or 2 Corinthians 4.17-18. The end of the story, beloved. The end of the story declares that evil is a passing shadow. Okay, shadows are not real. They simply tell us there's something real that's casting the shadow. Evil is a passing shadow, but righteousness is the eternal reality. The end of the story tells us that the resurrection of Jesus will one day be the resurrection of his people, and death does not get the final word. Cancer does not get the final word. Suffering does not get the final word. Jesus gets the final word. So put the helmet of salvation on your head to drive out the hopelessness and the despair that Satan wants you to give in to. Put the hope of salvation, put the helmet of salvation on your head, the already aspect to drive out the anxiety that would make you throw down your weapon and walk off the field of battle. So if we're going to stand, we need that helmet on our heads to guard our minds. Let's move on to the next piece of armor. So receive the helmet of salvation, and then next, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You'll notice as we look over the, the list of the Christian's armor, this is the only weapon that we, that we are just given information about. There's not like a, a lance or a spear of, of something else or whatever. There's just one weapon that he mentions, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so the fact that this is the only weapon in our hand says this is absolutely central. There is a centrality to the Scripture. Now, the Roman sword is what is described. There's a couple of words that different words that Paul could have used. There's one that would describe, a word that would describe the Thracian longsword, which is more, you know, when we think of a sword, like William Wallace running around with a sword, like big, long, 50-pound thing. There's another word that, that the one that Paul uses here that describes the Roman short sword, the gladius. It's about 18 inches long. It's basically like a glorified dagger. It's double-edged. It's got an edge on either side. And to be able to use it, you don't sort of stand way back from the enemy and do this. You have to get close. And the way the Romans would use that, you would get close and you would drive that sword up under the ribs of your enemy and that's how you'd kill him. It's, it's a sword that is used for hand-to-hand close combat. That's what he is describing. Now, what does he say the sword is? He says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, you'll notice in the other sort of list of our, our the, the armory of our armor here, the list of our, of our armory, we have the shield which is faith, the shield of faith. That, that of statement tells us what it is, the shield of faith, the, the, um, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation. But here we, we change it up a little bit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword here is the Word. We get this little phrase of the Spirit. Apparently that's where the, the Word comes from. Now, let me just make some, point, some comments here. If, the, if God's Word is our sword, if God's Word is our only weapon, in spiritual battle. That means this is absolutely central for the Christian life. The only weapon that the church of Jesus Christ has for advancing into enemy territory, the only means by which we take the fight to Satan, we take the fight to the world, is the Scriptures. The church of Jesus Christ does not have coercive or political power. The church of Jesus Christ is not a political action committee. The church of Jesus Christ is not meant to have a literal army to go fight crusades. The church of Jesus Christ is not just an organized protest against oppressive power. The church of Jesus Christ has one weapon in its hand, and that is the scripture. The church of Jesus Christ has one mission in the world, and that is to make Jesus Christ known. 
Now, sometimes we will declare that word in different settings. Sometimes we will declare that word in, in church services and behind pulpits. Sometimes you will declare that word in, in Bible studies with, with coworkers and with friends. Sometimes you will declare that word in one-on-one conversations in the driveway with your neighbor. Sometimes you'll declare that word in, in, uh, in the halls of Congress or in meetings at the city council or in courtrooms. Paul did that plenty. and He'd get hauled before the judge and publicly herald the word to the powers that be. The church certainly can speak truth to power. But the church does not seek that kind of power. We can never replace the gleaming spiritual sword of Scripture with the blunt sword of political posturing. One sword can pierce soul and spirit, and the other can merely coerce outward conformity. I love what Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Scripture can do something that no other book, no other message, no other power in the universe can do. So what is our strategy for reaching the city of Mobile? To declare the word of God. What is our strategy to grow Cloverleaf Baptist Church? It is to declare the word of God. What is our strategy to withstand the moral rot in the United States of America? It is to declare and herald the word of God. What is our strategy for resisting Satan? The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is to declare and herald the word of God. We dare not resist Satan any other way, for he is too powerful. We only have the word. How is it that we see sinners saved? By declaring the word of God. Don't replace the the gleaming steel of Scripture with the rusty blade of tradition. See, listen, all too often we equate tradition of what, here's how we've always done church with, that's what God must want us to do, rather than looking to the Scripture. Don't replace the gleaming steel of Scripture with the flimsy plastic sword of innovation for its own sake. Neither the rusty blade nor the flimsy plastic is a match for the razor-sharp steel of God's word. Now, this phrase here, take the sword of the Spirit. That's not giving us the definition of what it is. That's giving us the source of what it is. Where do we get this sword from? Where does the Scripture come from? The Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit. It means we have a, a word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we know 2 Timothy 3, but let me remind you, all Scripture is God-breathed. All scripture, every part, every word of what is written. Now, when Paul's writing that, he's referring to the Old Testament. Second Peter chapter 1 says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by whom? The Holy Spirit. Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95. So here's the writer of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament, something that probably David wrote. But you know who he ascribes it to? He says, the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. The same is true in Acts 28, 25, Acts 1, 16, quoting the Old Testament. Old Testament scriptures we know were written by particular human beings and saying it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through scripture. Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, in Matthew 22, verse 43. It's a psalm written by David, a real, known, historical, flesh and blood human being. And Jesus has no problem saying that the Holy Spirit says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here's the point. The Bible is powerful not because it's an ancient book. The Bible is powerful not because it's a beautiful book. The Bible is powerful not because it is a well-articulated book. The Bible is powerful because it's God's book. 
Because the words of Scripture are the words of God. And when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, we better listen and we better obey. And by the way, because God is a God of truth, the Scriptures do not lie, they do not err. Because God does not make mistakes, there are no mistakes in what God originally wrote down. This is truth. This is our sword. Now, I think it's worth noting the Holy Spirit did not inspire words in some heavenly language. He inspired words in human language. In fact, when you read the New Testament, the Greek in which the New Testament's written is not the Greek of the academy, this high-flying stuff that you have to have a PhD to understand. It's the Greek of the marketplace, koine, common Greek. We need the Bible in language that we can understand. If the sword is going to be unsheathed and kept sharp, we need it in language that we can get. We need it in language that we actually speak. It was Tyndale's prayer. When he first translated the New Testament, his desire was that the plowboy would know as much scripture as any priest or any pope. I like the the modern version of that from J.I. Packer. He says, I want the Bible to be understood by Joe the bus driver. This is not meant to be shrouded in mystery and language that we don't get, but in language that we can understand. Edification from scripture requires intelligibility. It requires understanding. Now, what about the Spirit? The Spirit not only inspires the Word, He wields the Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. There's often sort of two trajectories within Christian thought. There are those who want to emphasize the Spirit and sort of feelings and emotions, and the Spirit leads me to do this and He tells me to do this, and then those who want to emphasize the Word and doctrine. And sometimes we separate what God intended to be joined together. The sword... Of the Spirit, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. The Spirit of God speaks through the Word of God. We dare not separate what God has married together. So doctrinalists sometimes want the Word without Spirit. If we can just get our theology right, we'll be good to go. Some want theology, but very little worship. Mind without soul. Others, mystics, charismatic types, want the Spirit, but not as much Word. They want worship without truth and emotion without mind. Let me, tell you, let me just say this very clearly. Neither mystical experience, I had cool feelings, nor dead orthodoxy is effective. We need both the spirit and the word. We need spirit and truth together. We want the word with power. We want the sword that comes from the spirit wielded by the spirit. In the words of the old hymn, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. I can get up here and preach till I'm blue in the face, but if the spirit of God does not give life to those who are spiritually dead, I'm preaching to a cemetery. Unless the spirit of God opens our eyes to understand, we will not see how the word intersects with our lives. We need to pray. That's why the very next thing Paul says in verse 18 is praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So what is the power of the word? A sword is good really in two different ways, for defense and for offense. Right? So when the enemy attacks, then you break the sword out, you fight him back. The Bible, the word, is the way we fight off Satan's temptations. Uh, in our fellowship group on Wednesday, we're going to look at Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. How He, he could just say anything he wants, and it would be Scripture. But what does he do? He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus himself broke out the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to fight Satan as he stood as our substitute, as our representative. Jesus fought the lies of Satan with the truth of Scripture. He fought the the false promises of sin with the true promises of faith. 
When Jesus was attacked by the Pharisees and the lawyers, he asked, what is, what is written in the law? He appeals to Scripture as the highest court, as the highest authority in argument. Our reason, human reason, human logic, is not the highest, the highest argument, the highest authority. Collective tradition, we've always done this, or the church has always said, that's not the highest authority. Personal experience, well, I, I feel this or I think that. That's not the highest authority. God's word is the highest authority. It is the final arbiter of truth. It's what you measure your experiences by. It's what you evaluate your reasoning by. It is what you evaluate human tradition by. Divine revelation. We overcome Satan, as the words of Revelation twelve eleven says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, this does not mean that we just sort of quote Scripture and it magically works. We say the Bible is a spiritual book. I don't mean that it is a magical book. That I just quote the Bible whether or not I understand it. Paul is very, very clear in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, someone just comes in and babbles to your church in, in tongues and nobody understand it, understands it. Nobody's going to be edified. Edification requires intelligibility. It is the Bible not just sort of bypassing our minds working magic. That's not how the Bible works. It is the Bible understood and believed and obeyed and implemented into our lives that defeats Satan. So read the Bible so as to understand the Bible. Now, how do we use the Bible as an offensive weapon? Standing behind this, again, is the book of Isaiah, and, and particularly the servant song in Isaiah 49.2, that the, the, the servant of Yahweh, who we know is Jesus Christ, he speaks with a, with a sword coming from his mouth, this word about Christ, this word from Christ. So what is the edge of the sword? You know, what is the tip of the spear? The tip of the spear, the edge of the sword, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said a minute ago, the way that we advance, the way we go on the offensive, is with the gospel. We sang a minute ago that our, our desire is to rescue the captive, but to rage against the captor. I think sometimes we get that backwards. We rage against captives. We rage against those who don't know Jesus and get upset at them for living like they don't know Jesus. We won't attract people to Jesus if we're mad at them. We won't attract anyone to Christ if we're afraid of them. We have the sword of the spirit, the, the gospel message that we can take anywhere. Our desire is not simply to give Christian morality to the world. It's not simply to say, well, this is right and this is wrong. It is to give the Christian gospel to the world, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. The message of Jesus slices through man's defenses. It pricks his conscience. It cuts to the heart of the matter. To the self-righteous who says, I'm very good in God's sight. I can, I can sort of stand on my own two feet like the older brother in the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son. To those, the gospel cuts us down to size, says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and you're saved only by grace through faith. And to those on the other side of the ditch who are just so covered over in sin that they think, would God ever forgive me? It says, by grace. You're saved through faith. In other words, it goes after both legalism on one hand and lawlessness on the other. It cuts both of them down to the ground. Now, sometimes when the, when the sword is unleashed, it pricks hearts and brings conviction. We see that in Acts when Peter preaches, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? Other times, it cuts to the heart and unleashes wrath. And, and just a few chapters later, the, the same message of salvation to the Pharisees, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The exact same message, the exact same sword. Some people, it does surgery that gives life, and for other people, it kills. 
Listen, it's not up to us to determine the results. Our job is to simply declare the message. Some will reject it. Some will receive it. We are called simply to be faithful. Evangelism is not making people get converted. Evangelism is just being faithful to declare, to declare the word. Now, I want to finish with how we use this. The text tells us, text tells us take the sword of the Spirit. Take it in your hand. There's a way that we wrap our fingers around the handle of the sword. There's a way that we, we pull it out of its scabbard so that it's ready to go. There's a way that we take the gun out of the holster so it's ready to be used in battle. How do we use it? How do we take the sword of the Spirit? Let me give you some practical points of application. Number one, you need to know the Bible. You need to know the Bible. There's a reason why people in the military spend time on the firing range. So they know how their weapon works. You don't want it, the first time you use your weapon, you don't want it to be when the bullets are flying. Similarly, the first time that you break the Bible out, it shouldn't be in the middle of the temptation when Satan's coming at you. It's not in the middle of the time when you're like, hey, I need to give the gospel. Let me see if I can figure this out. Many, many Christians have a sword that they do not know how to use, a weapon with which they are unfamiliar. It is impossible to be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. It is impossible to be profoundly influenced by the Bible if you do not know the Bible. So read it. Read it in context from start to finish at least once a year. When you finish it, start over. Know it. Know it forward and backwards. Know the storyline. Know the stories, yes, but know the big story of what God is doing from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. We need to know the Bible so well that when a temptation or an attack comes, we know where to turn. We simply need to read it. You don't explore the depths of the Grand Canyon in one visit, and you do not explore the depths of Scripture in just one quick skim. We need more than just a, a quick visit to the Bible. We need to live in the Bible. Another way to use it is to think it. The Bible word here is meditate. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. In other words, you, you can be influenced by sin, or, the next verse, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Think the Bible. Chew on the Bible. Read the Bible and then take portions of it and think it over and over and over again until you think it down into your soul. Meditation is the bridge from Bible reading to prayer. It's how we get from reading the words on the page to being on our knees worshiping the God who is revealed on those pages. I would suggest to you that meditating on Scripture is probably the most important thing that you're not doing right now. Meditating on Scripture can change your life. Meditation on Scripture has the power to change our thinking, to redirect the channels of our mind, to reroute the wiring in our souls, to reorient the direction of our affections. Just as a soldier trains on his weapons until using it as second nature, so those who would use the sword of the Spirit well need to be so exercised with it and know it so well that we have it memorized and we have meditated it down into our hearts. Here's a third suggestion for using the scripture. Study it. Okay, the difference between reading and studying is when you study, you have a pen in your hand. When you study, you're, you're, you're noting the connections. You're paying attention to the structure. You're trying to break it apart, like taking an engine apart and seeing how all the pieces fit together. Study it in context. Interrogate it. Compare scripture with scripture. Consult commentaries. Have conversations with the divine author. Take advantage of the wealth of resources that are available for free on the internet and on podcasts and on YouTube to know this Bible well and to study it. 
And finally, we take the sword in our hands by speaking it. The goal here is not simply to edify ourselves to be like, well, I know a lot of scripture. It is to know it so that we can use it, so that we can speak to others about it. Christians should be used to discussing the Bible with each other. I know this is a revolutionary idea, but of all the things that we can talk to each other about, the thing I think that should be most readily on our lips is the Bible. It should not be a question that makes you get all defensive if someone comes to you and says, hey, how are devotions this week? That's not a gotcha question. That should be a, an assuming that you as a Christian are reading the Bible and you learn something to talk about. We, we, we try to facilitate this here at our church. Tonight we have a question and answer time. Maybe you had questions from the message this morning or you're reading the Bible and there was stuff that jumped off the page at you that you want to share or a question that came up. We take time on Sunday night so that we as Christians can get used to talking about it. It's one of the points of our Wednesday fellowship groups. Fellowship group is not just a time we get together and eat cookies. It's time for us to get together and be comfortable actually talking the Bible. If you're not comfortable talking about the Bible to the people in this room, why on earth do you think you'll be comfortable talking about it to the hostile atheist at work? Our Wednesday nights are sort of a training ground for us to get comfortable speaking about eternal matters with people who already believe them so we can get more and more used to speaking to them to people who don't. God's word needs to be on our lips. God's word needs to be in our hearts so that we can speak it. So I encourage you, come tonight. I encourage you, come on Wednesdays. I encourage you, take opportunities to teach the word and to speak the word to those around you. We're in the middle of the carnage of battle. We see people falling on the right hand, a thousand on your right hand and 10,000 on your left. How are we going to stand? We're going to stand by taking the full armor of God, all of it, every piece of it. We're going to have the belt of truth. We're going to have the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to have the shoes of the gospel. We're going to have the shield of faith. We're going to have the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, all of it. Every piece is essential, and every piece must be put on every day. That's the only way we're going to stand. Now, last point, and then I'll close. It's interesting that three of the pieces of armor relate to Scripture. The belt of truth, Scripture. Shield of faith, the promises revealed in Scripture. The sword of the spirit, again, is Scripture. We cannot neglect the word of God and expect to stand. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not been delivered from sin, and you're looking for deliverance and belonging everywhere, come to Christ today. Put your faith in him today. Trust in his finished work today to be delivered from sin and guilt and shame. I'm available to talk. Maybe you don't want to talk to me today. If you want to set up a time this week, like shoot me a text or an email. Let's have conversation. What are your objections? I, I would love to hear them. What are, your, what are your questions? What are your doubts? What's keeping you from relying on Jesus and only Jesus to save you? Father, may we trust. May we only trust Jesus. Help us as